Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Behind the Knife. My name's Matt Chia. I'm Eric Piotto. We're vasco-surgery residents at Northwestern and research fellows working on the second trial. We're joined by our mentors, PIs of the second trial, Dr. Yaron Hu. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us again for our series on surgical education. Today, we're discussing the LGBTQ plus experience of surgery, both from the perspective of a surgeon as well as a patient. As a queer vascular surgery resident, um, it's really important for us to understand what diversity, equity, inclusion looks like for the LGBTQ plus residents as well as patients. We have several fantastic guest speakers today joining us. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Chris DeJesu. He's a newly minted thoracic surgeon at the Boston Medical Center with a specialization in minimally invasive and robotic thoracic surgery. Dr. Jesu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Chia. I'm excited to be here. And I'd also like to take a moment to introduce our next speaker, Jessica Hallam. She is the Senior Director of the EDOS LGBTQ Plus Health Initiative at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also been a part of numerous projects related to LGBTQ Plus health and cultural competency in the healthcare workplace. I actually met her when she was the inaugural director of the LGBTQ curriculum at Harvard Medical School, and she put on several events there, which I attended, and then she talked to us in several different occasions as trainees at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And look at you now. Look, it worked. <laughs> Everything I said came true. I said, you could, I said you could be a successful, out and proud person. And so I'm so it's so wonderful to get to see people throughout their careers. Congratulations on the new job, Dr. DJSU. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's exciting and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> we also have Dr. Michaela West joining us today. She wrote the invited commentary to the first paper we'll discuss. Dr. West is a current professor of surgery at the University of Minnesota and currently has a trauma critical care practice at North Memorial Hospital. Dr. West, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. And in contrast to Dr. To Jesu, I am very much not starting my first job. <laughs> Probably the oldest one on the podcast. Well, fantastic. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to link a few articles that inspired our discussion in the show notes if you want some more detail. Dr. Hu, could you start us off with the first paper? It's titled, The Experience of LGBTQ Plus Residents in U.S. General Surgery Training Programs. It was published in JAMA Surgery last year. Yeah, thanks. So this was one of our papers. It's based on absite survey data, which I think most people are familiar with. And we found that LGBTQ plus residents experience higher rates of discrimination, bullying, and sexual harassment, unfortunately, most commonly from attending surgeons. Additionally, although they reported similar career satisfaction and rates of burnout, they were almost twice as likely to consider leaving their programs or committing suicide. 
And once we controlled for mistreatment, that disparity in suicidality disappeared. So all that is pretty disheartening, although perhaps not all that surprising. We're not obviously the only ones to help us on the issue. There's also a viewpoint that's going to be linked from JAMA Surgery by McKean et al. that has some pretty terrible stats. For example, more than half of LGBTQ plus surgical residents don't feel comfortable coming out and are subject to frank bigotry. But that said, I don't think anyone really wants to hear from me about it. Um, we want to hear about it from all of you guest speakers. That's why we invited you. Well, I was very, very pleased to be asked to, to write a commentary on it. And I, I thought that the the thing that was surprising to me is that, that in this group of residents taking the ab site, about 5% just came out and within the parameters that you had there admitted that they were LGBTQ. But th there was another 5 or 6% who preferred not to answer and were not included in it. And, and many recent surveys, especially among younger individuals have identified that the proportion of LGBTQ people may be even as high as 35%. So I, I think that it, it really sets more of a floor than a ceiling. Yeah, I would agree with Dr. West on that, that I think this is most importantly a, a floor, not a ceiling, you know, especially with this survey, it's those who identify. And as we know, your identity is a broad spectrum. And on top of that, especially in a training environment where there's a lot of stressors and a lot of things that keep you busy, some people may not be comfortable to both come out or identify as their true self in this type of survey. Yeah, I, I think underneath your question there, Dr. West, is really, is surgery weeding out LGBTQ people early on? I think that's kind of the elephant in the room with that question. Are LGBTQ medical students not choosing surgery because of the anxiety that it's going to be a hostile, unsupportive environment? And of course, the answer is yes. We know the answer is yes, that there are plenty of excited, interested, brilliant med students listening right now who are LGBTQ, who feel that surgery is not a specialty for them. They go through their rotations, they feel unsupported, they feel nervous. It's very hard for them to connect with a mentor and get relationships. We know that relationship starts early on before you apply for residency. So what's at the heart of this is we're losing brilliant, wonderful future surgeons who are LGBTQ because they believe that this is not a specialty for them. I, I completely agree. And I will say that, at least for me, you know, when I went through my rotations in medical school, I knew that I liked surgery because I liked being in the operating room. I liked thinking about the pathologies. I liked using my hands. But then when I met with the program director at my medical school, which is actually a, is a very liberal medical school, the program director at that program said, I, I met with her to talk about my applications and I asked her, should I come out, you know, during my residency interviews? And she said, I'm going to be honest with you, no one in surgery likes a flag waiver. And so she goes, absolutely not. You shouldn't do that. What you do in your personal life shouldn't affect the way you are in the hospital or how you do surgery. And so it set the tone for me going into a surgical residency that I needed to suppress that when I first started. Obviously, I then got to a surgical residency that was very supportive. And I think people should seek out those types of programs. But it, I was one of those people that could have been weeded out from the very beginning. But that's really disheartening to hear. I, I think that there is some idea that who you are as a surgeon should be tied to your competence, your ability, your knowledge. 
and who you are outside of that. I, I guess I could uh, appreciate where that perspective comes from, but at the same time, I think that who I am as a person is as my full authentic self in training is as important to my conduct of how I interact with my patients as anything tangible about what I do in my vascular training. So much of your residency application is about showing your leadership potential, showing off what you're interested in, what kind of projects you did in medical school, what you were like as an undergrad. And for so many LGBTQ young people, they are getting their leadership through LGBTQ advocacy. They're interested in researching LGBTQ health. They want to be able to talk about how they've studied disparities or worked on medical education projects. And so it's impossible for you to have the strongest application these days without talking about all of these things. And LGBTQ students then get screwed when they're told, like you were told, not to talk about that, where you're like, students feel like they've diminished themselves. And that's the last thing we want in a surgeon. And to kind of go off of what Jessica Hallam said is that, yes, a lot of these medical students who are applying to residencies are having robust experiences within LGBT, whether it's research or extracurricular activities. But I think most importantly, it's even just the personal aspect of it. And I know I think surgery historically has been known as the most, quote, professional subgroup of medicine. But at the end of the day, surgeries are long. People still talk. The attendings still ask. They are proud of their their children, their spouse, what they're going to do this weekend on their day off after a long day of call. And yes, again, professionalism, you know, you you should only talk about it in certain aspects of it. But you realize that if you are someone who's queer, that's where you start getting isolated. So even if you, you know, shut down all of these great accolades that were LGBT, get into a residency and then decide to finally start talking about yourself, that's setting someone up for failure. I think it's most important to be transparent about it. And I think that's the best advice I have been given thus far and that I'm giving medical students is to be very open about who you are because it doesn't end once you get that match letter. I'm like still thinking about what Dr. Tejasi said about flag waving. Like the idea that just being yourself is like so in someone else's face, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than the fact that you have to hide everything you are is so much work on top of the work that residency is. Absolutely. People people don't want you to be proud of who you are. You're, you're there to work. Even now as a new attending in a new hospital, I'm meeting everyone for the first time. And so a lot of people are asking those small talk questions. And just yesterday, one of the OR nurses asked me, was like, oh, so do you have a wife? Mm-hmm. And even though I've been out for a long time, I had that pause of like, do I come out right now? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I decided, no, I have a fiance is a guy. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, he quickly moved on. He's like, oh, okay, well, what does he do? But it still was that, like, I had to pause for a second. And then I think for people who may be early on in their training, they may have that pause and then decide, no, I, I can't come out. You know, one of my favorite stories about you is in residency, we were in residency together, you were interviewing, we were at an interview dinner, and you met an applicant and said, do you have a wife? And then he took the pause and said, no, actually, it's a boyfriend. And you were like, yes, me too. <laughs> yes, I, had, I, had, I was like, wait, I'm gay. I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, in, so, like do it. heteronormativity is so strong, right? That like, but those those small things and, and that little interaction in the operating room with a circulating nurse or, or whatever, that those are important. And, and it's important to 
make the environment more comfortable for everyone. And it does. But Dr. West, how, how do you handle those moments? What's, you know, you've got now some years of doing this. How, how do you handle those moments? Well, uh, as I've said in a couple of Grand Round presentations, I actually have the privilege of not being immediately outed as a trans woman when mm -hmm. I'm encountering someone. And, and that is a privilege that I actually do value. I mean, I, I don't think that I am strong enough or brave enough to have transitioned if I didn't have that. What, um, what about the wonderful part about this article is that it draws the connection between LGBTQ issues and what women, all women, face around sexism mm -hmm. and sexual harassment. Dr. West, you have a, a, an incredible lifetime of experience now. Tell us a, what's, what's your experience with sexual harassment? Whereas perhaps it, it took a year or two for, you know, of my living in in my new identity to be able to integrate as well with other women, it took, it was like an absolutely turnkey thing that I got some of the harassment and discrimination that other women talk about, about being, you know, in a discussion and not being identified as, you know, somebody else would would come up later with the same point that I had made. And then they're getting like, oh, that's a great idea. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, oh, man. that didn't take long. Oh, is that <laughs> fascinating? That is fascinating. Oh. Like you lost your voice yeah. <laughs> with the transition. Hmm? I, I think, no, I think the thing, and, and it's important and, and just emphasizing again, that a part of my agency is that I am far enough along in my career. I have accomplished enough, whatever that exactly means. And I don't have to work, and therefore that I can lend my voice to some things that, that are difficult for other people. I mean, some of the other people on the podcast that are still early in their careers, that they are having to make harder choices. I kind of don't have anything to really lose, and I therefore should be advocating for people who don't have a voice. But we've got to be out there so that people see us and know that, that we're not harmful or dangerous or different or have have different things. We've just got to be out and proud. And that is what I'm trying to do. Your experience in looking for a training position, um, Dr. Dejus, was it similarly replicated when you were looking for fellowship or like you're attending? Yeah. No, I think, you know, first of all, things have significantly improved. I'm a PGY-10 now, so it's been 10 years since I applied, you know, more than 10 years since I applied to residency. And so I think things have, have significantly changed. And also I targeted areas that were more accepting and both for fellowship and with looking for a new job, which there's a lot of things I didn't realize. You know, I know several people who are looking for their first job and maybe that hospital doesn't have specific parental leave policies for gay male couples. And so it can be difficult for them. I know one of my friends, one's a, a surgeon at one hospital and his husband's an infectious disease doctor at another hospital. And they had varying policies based on paternity leave for the two of them. And so it took a lot of working with their diversity, equity, and inclusion committee to ultimately get them that type of thing. Um, in terms of support at Boston University, you know, we have 
They have group meetings for all the clinical faculty who are LGBTQ plus to talk about their experiences. You know, they actively tweet about LGBT people and promote them on their outward facing websites and, and social media. And there are many openly gay residents throughout the residency program. So I think all of those sort of add up to a, a place that I felt comfortable with. And I think people should look for those. You mentioned some things that are happening at the faculty level, but I think that there are a lot of trainees out there who might feel very similar to where you were coming out of medical school and trying to navigate their identity and their desire to pursue a surgical career. What are some things that should be happening now? I think we've seen more movement in the DEI space that is obviously encouraging, but I don't think anybody's under any illusion that surgery is there yet, whatever there means. Yeah, I think, you know, having cultural competency integrated into didactic lectures for the residents, so people know how to interact with their colleagues, how to interact with their patients. I think if people know how to interact with LGBTQ plus patients, they're also going to be better around their colleagues as well. I've heard colleagues, you know, initially early on talking about PrEP and that means they're promiscuous and that sort of stuff (laughs) for gay men. And it's just simply because they didn't understand, you know, why people may take that. And so I think having formalized trainings for program, you know, having LGBT facing people on your social media, having policies that allow for paternity and maternity leave that are inclusive or support people who are trying to have children through surrogacy, those types of things all ultimately add up to a a better experience. I just want to add to that, that I've been working with health centers, academic medical centers all over the U.S. and the world, actually, for a long time on these issues. And there is a deep connection between LGBTQ patient care and how LGBTQ physicians and clinical staff feel at that hospital, all the staff at the hospital, that you really can't do one without the other, that oftentimes I'll get approached from a hospital system that will say, will you come in and train everybody about how to care for LGBTQ patients? And I'll say, well, first, I'd like to know how do your LGBTQ people who work here feel, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a two-way street. If if you've got out and successful, happy, (laughs) dare I say, happy people who work inside of your medical system who are LGBTQ, the patient population is going to pick up on that. They're going to love to see that. That's going to really build a lot of trust and transparency. But this point that you've just made is really, really important. We've got to talk about BTQ healthcare issues from the very beginning because there's so much misunderstanding. There's so much stereotype and bias And in surgery, y'all tell me every five minutes, none of this matters to me. I'm a surgeon. I don't care. None of this matters. I'm a surgeon. I don't care what you do. I don't even want to talk to you. You know, you're asleep the whole time. None of this matters, Jessica. None of this matters. None of this matters. None of this matters. But we know that it does. We know that surgeons have to understand the whole patient, the family, the impact the context, what was happening before they came in, what's going to happen when they leave. So we we do know that surgery needs to be more connected to the whole patient. But you all are the new generation who's drawing the connection between knowing about LGBTQ health issues, being an out and proud surgeon, and that's going to make a better work environment and better patient outcome. 
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Could you speak a little bit about your work creating inclusivity at, at, at Harvard and at Penn? Oh, wow. Well, you know, all I can say is it's, it was a challenge. It is a challenge. It's a gift. Um, and and I, I really love that that you all have, all of the doctors on this podcast have touched on how much things have changed. And we have to, we do really need to take a moment to celebrate. I would say in, in the past 10 years, it's been a huge amount of of change, innovation that has happened inside of inside of hospitals, inside of medical schools, residency programs. I would say the number one challenge we have right now is that the more senior faculty are running to catch up to where the young faculty are today. That's really the challenge. And I see, I know you all agree, right? That mm -hmm. the, the more senior faculty, the senior physicians, those are the folks who are teaching. Those are the ones that have so much to teach you all, right? But they feel so left behind. The majority of my job, I swear, is just sitting alone in an office and doctors coming in and closing the door and say, Jessica, you've got to tell me what the heck I'm supposed to say to the medical students when they're coming, rotating with me because I'm saying the wrong things. So much of this driver is you all who are young out and proud queer and trans doctors who are pushing the more senior faculty and administration to, to pick up the ball. So Harvard Medical School created this first position. I started doing that in 2014, eight years ago now. They sort of said, listen, we've got to do more around LGBTQ issues. The students, the med students are clamoring for it. And I went around to all of the hospitals and I met with every out LGBTQ doctor that I could find, resident and attending. And those meetings were done in hushed voices. The doors were closed. There was a lot of tears. Senior, even attendings at that time, feeling that the nurses were talking about them behind their back, the, the admin staff, the leadership, so many out LGBTQ faculty felt really undermined and unsupported. And here we are now, eight, 10 years later, I got recruited here to the University of Pennsylvania to really drive more innovation when it comes to healthcare for LGBTQ people. We know that the base level is understanding the foundations of LGBTQ healthcare, but from there, surgeons listen up. There is innovation that needs to take place. That's just the foundation. You all got to get in there and you got to make things better. You've got to develop new processes. You've got to invent some stuff. You got to really show that the future of LGBTQ health is really limitless. There's so much we don't know. There's so much yet to figure out because we're still just focused on the basics, right? Pronouns, 
talk about your boyfriend. Come on, folks. There's so much opportunity here to move the needle on LGBTQ health. Well, and importantly, surgery and surgeons see themselves as leaders in medicine and have been at the forefront of of lots of innovative things. You know, surgery was behind the Joint Commission and, and quality programs at the very beginning, more than 100 years ago. So surgeons were at the forefront of that. So we can and should be leading rather than following. You know, surgeons do not perceive themselves as followers. And this is this is important work we should be leading. Oh, I love that point. Everyone always talks about how hard culture change is, but surgeons love hard. That's like <laughs> our wheelhouse. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. And I, and I just really want to say this point also. I hear this so much from trainees, you know, People, people who are LGBTQ, people who are queer and trans and, and want to be surgeons, they'll get tears in their eyes and they'll say, you know, but, but I, I, how can I do LGBTQ health and be a surgeon? And I just want to say, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is the beautiful role of plastics in supporting bodily affirmation. But, but it's not just plastics, everybody. There's so many areas of surgery that you as an out person, but also that could touch on so many areas. Vascular surgeons, how little research there is on cross-sex hormones and the vascular system. What is the impact of cross-sex hormones? Folks, we need this research to be done. We need to lead when it comes to ensuring that trans people can be safe and happy and healthy in their bodies and take the hormones that they need. I did not know that. I think there's just so many things that, like, so you haven't even things. scratched the surface, right? You have not scratched the surface. <laughs> no, I recently heard a presentation on inclusive care and mentioned, for example, if you are a trans man and you have not yet had top surgery and you need to go get a mammography for screening and you have to go to the women's health oh, center. Jesus, and everything's pink. Mm -hmm. I mean, even I don't like that everything's pink. Like, why? I'm not a baby girl. Stupid. Like. <laughs> stupid. It's so stupid. Y'all, there are some areas where we want to get gender right, and there are some areas where we could de-gender medicine, right? Uh, getting a screening for your chest and breast tissue does not need to be overly gendered, everyone, okay? Can we just <laughs> do some medicine, everyone? Don't you don't have to treat me like a, you know, little pony princess. It's podcasts like this. We need more surgeons who are members of the LGBTQ plus community to be out and proud and taking up space. We need the associations that you all belong to. I'm doing work in Australia. I'm doing work in the UK. Where are the U.S. surgical associations throwing conferences, panels, supporting out LGBTQ surgeons. I want to see all of your associations doing more to say, we want you, you're welcome here. We want you to thrive in your career. The top levels of surgery need to really embrace this as a conversation. Dr. Piatto, I also want to talk about an article that you wrote in Vascular Specialist last June uh, titled Being Queer Without Proximal or Distal Control. And vascular surgery is definitely not renowned for being very inclusive, but can you tell us a little bit more about your experience both as a trainee and then doing some research in this space? 
Yeah, so um, yeah, recently I presented at the Vascular Annual Meeting, which is the largest conference for vascular surgery in the U.S., and it was going over a lot of our results, and it was regarding, you know, a lot of the questions I got were, well, we can't change if a patient is racist, you know, they're, they're old, you know, why can't we just wait till, quote, they die out, or, you know, what can we really do as program directors, because a lot of these mistreatment reports are out of our control, and I actually answered it twofold. So I said, by just nature of vascular surgery, all our patients will be old. Therefore, you can't rely on these beliefs that the older generation, it's okay for them to be sexist, homophobic, transphobic, continuing on in all these intersectionalities and just be very dismissive about it while not taking accountability. Same goes for, you know, the newer generations. We're very aware of that, you know, even the millennials and the Gen Z we're not, quote, woke. You know, there's still people who are racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. That's not going to go away. and It's going to be perpetuated continuously for generations. What I think we do have some control over is we as healthcare providers, we as leaders of the hospital need to be accountable for this to ourselves, have zero tolerance for this, but also for patients. Patients are here to get care from healthcare providers in a healthcare setting. If they are being disrespectful to whatever form of healthcare provider they have, that should not be acceptable either. I know a lot of institutions are having zero tolerance policies if their patients are having some form of mistreatment to whether it's a nurse, any faculty or staff. And I think that's very important for us to be aware of that just because you're flown in from an outside hospital, it's not okay for you to be homophobic to me. I think I think some hospitals have adopted, you know, things like patient codes of conduct to address that. Like you cannot treat our faculty, our staff inappropriately. And I think, you know, that's just one of the things that, you know, hospitals can do talking about, you know, various initiatives. And that's just one of them. Well, and clearly it's not limited to LGBTQ staff members or other patients, but, but I think that many institutions are more comfortable saying that we're not going to let a patient be denigrating some religious minority or racial or ethnic minority and I think that LGBTQ individuals need to be treated just in the same way. It's not asking for anything that's different, but that that, that would be there. And often what, what ends up needing to happen in those cases is that when someone says, you know, what a sir or ma'am, you know, that you can't really say that, that's this is one of my colleagues or whatever, that somebody else also needs to step up and say, you know, I, I agree with that person. That often is very helpful to, to see that everyone is together rather than kind of trying to split off the, the one disenfranchised person and let them take the wrath of that. Everybody needs to be united. But that's a perfect way to come to a conclusion. I'd, I'd like each of you to, to just give us some practical tips like that. Or what are some take-homes that you'd want everybody in surgery to know or do? Or like, what, what are some things that we should immediately tomorrow when we go into work or tonight, if you happen to be on call, <laughs> what, what, what can we take with us right now to our workplace, our, our respective uh, circles of influence? I would just say that we should treat people the way they want to be treated and ask them how they want to be treated or, or what names or pronouns or whatever they want. That just takes very little time for us to ask, but it's a different thing and comes from a different place than saying, I, I think they'd want to be treated the way I want to be treated. They may not. Just ask them and listen to what they say. That's, that's equally important. I want all of the 
LGBTQ surgeons and trainees and med students listening to this to start taking up more space. I want LGBTQ surgeons taking up more space, talking about their life with confidence, talking about their families, their partner, talking about their hopes and dreams. I just want us to take up more space with confidence, love, and appreciation that you deserve to be there. You deserve to be there. You should take up the space. You should be a leader. You are, are going to be fabulous, and it's going to go great, and it's going to get easier, and I'm so proud of you. You're here. <laughs> I'll just say that I think for our non-LGBTQ plus colleagues, if you don't know something or you don't quite understand something that someone says, take the time to, to learn, to look things up. You know, you don't understand a person's on testosterone and should it be started right after surgery or when should it be started or whatever medication is that interplay with whatever hormonal therapy they're taking. Look it up and, and try to understand both your LGBTQ plus patients as well as your colleagues. And then I would say for the LGBTQ plus colleagues, be un unapologetic. And by that, I mean truly be true to yourself. It took the 75th Vascular Annual Meeting for a man, queer man to walk in with stilettos, six-inch stilettos, and that was me. That's the same year this year where we also had the first ever queer cocktail hour for medical students. And it was so beautiful for them to see someone that looked like them, one, and two, to keep saying, I love vascular surgery. I want to be a vascular surgeon but do I need to hide myself? And the answer is absolutely not. You'll find a place. And for the non-LGBTQI plus colleagues, get uncomfortable. A lot of the queer patients and colleagues have been very uncomfortable forever. It's time for you to be uncomfortable and it's okay to ask the hard questions. We know that you won't get it right the first time, but it's better for you to face it head on rather than ignore it. I love that point. It's also not that uncomfortable. Right? Like, you have the moment of like, oh, I don't know this. And then you look it up and you know it, right? It shouldn't be that hard. But as Dr. West said earlier, we love hard. Well, I really want to thank you all so much for coming to discuss this topic and for bringing your experience to bear on these critical areas for improvement in our field. Special thanks to Dr. Piatto, Dr. West, Jessica Hallam, and Dr. Dujesu for joining us in this conversation. You can find them on Twitter at Dr. Piatto, at DJSUMD at Jessica Hallam and at Michaela WST. You can find Dr. Who at Your Own Who and myself at Chia underscore MD. Be sure to follow Behind the Knife at Behind the Knife on Twitter and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for tuning in. Bye now. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. 
Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash aware. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.